Hello and welcome to From the Rooftops. That's Clay. And that's Talon, I think. I haven't seen him and another Talon in the same room at the same time. And we're here to tell you about the way in which, if only you supers stopped relying so much on your powers, you could do so much more. After all, we're just ordinary people. We're just rich. Very, very rich. I have some bitterness. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be talking about a character archetype we call the natural. That is the unpowered or barely powered superhero, usually fighting crime. For some examples of this type of character, you can look to Hawkeye or Black Widow for some permutations of Black Widow in major Uh, popular culture. Uh, You can also look to some interpretations of Batman. Green Arrow... Classic Black Canary, Wildcat, uh, Bronze Tiger, Shang-Chi, maybe Moon Knight, sometimes. That's, <laughs> I love the that maybe Moon- is the whole point. I love that show. Moon Knight is like our eternal asterisk. Like, every time he comes up, it's like, sort of. <laughs> That's the whole point, man. That's what makes it great. It's mm-hmm. the baby. I love these things. So, uh, the, the natural, we want to separate, very importantly, from uh, characters who are naturally powered. Um, Superman is not a natural in this context, even though, like, everything Superman can do is just a byproduct of being Superman, he, of the, the sun that affects him and just his physiology and whatnot. Yes, yeah, same with, uh, you know, Martian Manhunter, Blade, anybody who's born with it. This is about characters who are meant to represent, as close as the authors can, a human who could exist in the real world, more or less hanging tight with superhero characters who have special abilities that let them go above and beyond the normal uh, means of what humans are capable of. You've got slightly more beef with it than I do, you know? I mean, I'm the guy who yells about Batman a lot, but that has nothing to do... Well, it has maybe 30% to do with his state as a natural. Mm. I I actually like a lot of characters like this. I'd like to think that my beef has, over time, slowly... uh, uh, I don't know what cooked. the term this is. Cooked. I, I, I'm, I'm not as angry about this stuff as I used to be. Um, in in no small part because getting over this stuff was just a byproduct of getting older. But the the nature of the natural for me was most tightly defined when I was uh, dealing with both Christian media from my upbringing and also uh, dealing with characters being played on City of Heroes as a very particular type of archetype. See, okay. it's really I know com- the second, but I really want to hear that first one, because this is news to me. And yeah, okay. I'm intrigued. So, one of the things that you would get in the special sphere of Christian media is you would often be given things that were meant to be, well, don't read that evil satanic thing. Read this cool Christian version of the same thing. You can enjoy all the things you normally like as an actual human Uh, if you just happen to go along with what we want you to like. Um, Mm. And so I read a lot of uh, Christian science fiction and comics, and I mean like pop pulp Christian science fiction and comics. Um, In fact, there's a a crossover here point where there's an artist behind a series called Zanan, and Zanan is basically Christian space cop. Um, Mm. It's not very good, uh, but the artist is apparently like an actual person who worked for Marvel as well. The the thing with this type of media is you would often be presented with this lineup of characters who weren't the Christian one. They weren't the good one that you were meant to identify with, but they all had cool powers. And they all got to do cool stuff. And then the Christian one would be presented as saying, well, you know, I can't do all that, but 
I have Jesus, and at the right moment that would just that would just work. And so you get these amazing dramatic confrontations where instead of watching like the rock monster and a character who has tentacles for arms punching each other and, and like resolving a problem that doesn't exist in the real world, uh, you would just get like this one extremely embarrassing instance of a totally normal person giving a really earnest speech and the message of being like hey this could be you christian warrior teen wow wow i mean i knew that stuff exi- i didn't draw that connection i assumed a lot of that existed and i've seen bits of it like bible man and his lightsaber and shit yeah yeah bible that- bible man is a really great example of this because it's memetically funny enough because it's memetically funny enough that people will have put it up on youtube and you'll be able to find it where yeah. essentially you have a character who is really just a very dorky, um, uh, um, what, what's the word for it? A youth study leader who, mm. you know, they try to dress up in a suit and it's like, well, he's a superhero now, so he gets to do the cool thing. But at the end of every confrontation, instead of doing a cool thing with the powers he has and using his mind or using the abilities that they've already outlined, he always, always goes... And now I'm going to ask Jesus for help because this problem is too big for me. I'm going to pray and miraculously things will change. And that is so unsatisfying. It could be cool if, like, it's presented as actual full-on magic, you know? Yeah. Like, like when he basically he's casting a spell, that could be cool. Yeah. You that know, was... they actually noticed that that could be cool, and they made that character, and it's called the Spectre. <laughs> Do not take the Spectre as the example of how you should be doing things for Christian media. Just, just to say, yeah. don't, <laughs> don't follow the lead of the Spectre. Look, look, look. We're, we're advertising right now. We're on a, we're doing a fucking sleeper cell campaign to get into the church and just fucking give them horrifying stories about <laughs> murder and death. So, oh, yeah, the the uh, the fundamental structure of this type of media was biased towards this idea, um, and it. It was a problem. It, it meant that I wound up uh, becoming very resentful of this media that was saying, hey, we're going to give you this cool thing to enjoy. Ha ha. No, we're not. Joke's on you. It's actually about things that kind of suck. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And it's now you know my pain. <laughs> and this, did, this was enlightening because actually, I know the City of Hero narrative like of how... There's always that one asshole who needs to be overly cool in a setting. Yeah. And unimpressed with I superheroes. Always yeah. unimpressed with superheroes. Yeah. And for and for me, that whole thing is a character like that. There's a way to do those sorts of characters. And it's funny because having quote unquote like realism suddenly intersect can be entertaining in like an asshole way. Like every once in a while. Not all the time, but every once in a while. It's fun. To watch the Punisher just go, oh no, I just shot him. What the fuck were y'all doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, this Kung Fu shit. Like, I just shot the guy. That's fun. Yeah, and this is a to that. Um, and that, that winds up going back to what we said last, last time about, um, about genre. Because the concept of, of how you solve problems tells us a bit of who you are. It's just the problem solving of the Punisher is just not the sort of problem solving everyone else should be using. And it's probably not something we should be recommending that people embrace, like, conceptually. Yeah. And I think the whole thing of, like, I just shot him is kind of at the core of it. Because, like, when we look at natural characters, they tend to hang around a specific genre. It's always, you know, noir, crime drama, uh, espionage, intrigue, things like that. With maybe little hints of, you know, 
the supernatural or the super scientific yeah. coming in on the sides. And that's part of the appeal for me is to see, you know, corrupt politicians and mob bosses and, you know, uh, corporate fat cats and what have you get theirs. Because, I mean, Superman has one of those, but he also has 50 science monsters and robots and shit. Yeah. And yeah, Lex Luthor is a big deal, but he's just one guy. He's only one part of Superman's story, regardless of what the movies will tell you. Yeah. You know? Uh, similar to Spider-Man, he's got Norman Osborn, Osborn, and, but then he's got a bunch of other dudes, you know? Yeah. You know, Daredevil fights the Kingpin. And. Yes! Daredevil is a maybe case. I say he is just outside of that realm, but Punisher also fights the Kingpin. You know? Shit, they all deal with, like, real people. It's not about how realistic the things they do are for me. It's about how realistic the things they're facing are. Mm. So, as as Clay outlined, in City of Heroes, there was basically, and like I, like, like I mentioned, it was a social problem. It wasn't something to do with the genre or the people who liked the genre or even the people who liked that kind of character. It was that we would sit, we would all be sitting together in a collaborative space, and a couple of characters would be sitting around talking about a problem that they encountered and someone else would redirect the conversation to being about, oh, well, that's not actually a problem because I'm better than you. Like, that's really what it boiled down to, even though it was masquerading as, no, I prefer to write stories about natural heroes or normal people. Right. And again, like I said in the first episode, it's really not about believability because if you're the main character, you're not going to die. Even if... Even, again, Batman is just as invulnerable as Superman in his own story because he's fucking Batman. He's got billions of books and shit. He's not going to die anytime soon, at least not for long. Yeah. But, and I think that's some of the writing because, like, natural characters tend to be on that back alley level we talked about. And part of it is that sense of powerlessness that goes with the type of writing that happens in that genre. Because, yeah. like, like, Skyline Heroes will save the day and they will avert disasters. Even their villains, like Lex Luthor, creates fake disasters. And Bizarro is a disaster. So is, you know, Atomic Skull, Metallo, Brainiac. Yeah. You know, Spider-Man, Flash, they'll sort of have these confrontations one-on-one with equal level threats. But characters like Batman, Daredevil, Green Arrow, most of their villains, their ability is... The ability to field large amounts of goons or create complicated traps. So, like, the plot of a Batman or a natural story is always, how are they going to get out of this one? Not, how are they going to save the day? How are they going to fight this guy? How are they going to get out of this problem that makes us feel like they're on the back step? And they're not. They're the hero. But we want them to feel like that. So that creates this sensation of, quote, powerlessness. And we want to know how they do it that that's like core to the whole problem we would like to know Mm. how they achieve the thing we are effectively setting for them right Uh, that's how they show us who they are Mm. and again like we we create this sensation of powerlessness and this to create this weird dynamic where people think they're doing more than they are or less than they are uh i think it was you me and you had this conversation once where we talked about some team and i said oh, what kind of level is this team going to be on? And I'm putting words in your mouth that may not have even been you, but they said, you said, uh, well, I was thinking maybe something more Avengers and less Justice League, right? <laughs> I don't think oh, that was so- me, but go on. 
<laughs> right. And I was like, well, the Avengers has the Hulk and Thor on it. <laughs> they, the Hulk has punched plants apart and back together again. Yeah. But we tend to view the Hulk as a victim because a lot of Hulk stories are him versus the military, and that makes him seem smaller. Mm-hmm. And that well, same, you know, dynamic, we have a lot of Batman stories or Green Arrow stories where it's him versus large amounts of people or trapped in something. Yeah. You know? Uh, on, on a similar note, the kinds of problems that these uh, these natural characters tend to deal with, uh, like the thing with the Hulk is the reason the military represent a problem for him isn't actually that he desires it isn't actually like the U.S. military or even the global military represents a problem for him because again he punched apart a planet. The issue for the Hulk is collateral. He doesn't mm. want to escalate the problem. He doesn't want to go alright, I'm going to punch all the tanks to pieces. What now? He actually wants to be left alone, and he knows that just lashing out works against that. Right. Most of the time, the powers of a natural hero, and I say powers nebulously, because what we're really talking about there are like things that you can't call powers, but things that give you that edge. Um, They are usually de-escalation. Even if it's just... Batman's magic fists in Batman the Animated Series where he punches someone in the jaw once and they go down and they're fine. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually... Now, I hate... I hate the, like, constant writing on the Animated Series because, mm-hmm. like, it's been years, you know? And yeah. it didn't get everything right. But, I'll tell you right now, Mask of the Phantasm, I'll suck that, that movie's dick all day. Yeah. Mask of the Phantasm the... dick has one of those little punch cards and it's about to get a free smoothie. Yeah, the the uh, the best things about that series have weathered well, and this is right. one of the best things. For the listener, give a quick rundown. Of Mask of the Phantasm. Mask of the Phantasm was a full-length movie sort of spinning off of the 90s Batman animated series. Um, one of the things it did was it had two sort of parallel plot lines. One, dealing with Bruce Wayne like, just coming out of college, right as he's about to become Batman, and the other of him dealing with this appearance of a new serial killer figure called the Phantasm, which is attacking old mobsters, and how those two plots tie together. And it's great, because it's not quite an origin story, but it also gives you an interesting look of the difficulty of becoming Batman. And one of the cool things it does is it it almost directly adopts certain key points of Batman from the book Year One by Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli. Mm-hmm. I think it's David Mazzuchelli. Um, uh, who are, which was, for what it's worth, generally the kind of authors who have aggressively pushed against the, right. the uh, uh, as it were, special heroes. They, they clearly right. prefer characters who are very much meant to be ordinary. Right, yeah. Frank Miller's the one who sort of retcon that Daredevil doesn't have powers. Mm. So and, or uh, supposedly doesn't have powers. Yeah, and similarly, uh the the entire point of uh of the Dark Knight returns was meant mm. to be even with your powers you can still be brought low. Even if in the actual story he doesn't win, etc. So and so forth. It, the, right, the thing that right. people came away with. Mm-hmm. Right, that's where Batman and Power Honor comes from. Yeah, and uh, if you look if you look at other work like Batman Year One uh, by Miller, there's a clear resentment and condescension towards powered characters. <laughs> I wouldn't put that all in Year One because they just don't show up. They're not relevant. No, I'm, to the I'm, plot. I'm not thinking Year One. I'm thinking 
uh, All-Star Batman and Robin. Ah, yes, where he paints himself yellow and beats up Green Lantern. Yeah. <laughs> that's all they need to do. Yeah, um, <laughs> similarly, there's the, there's the way that Superman is painted as being literally a child in that. <laughs> yeah, but, like I said, that's one of the best things about Phantasm, is it takes some great key moments from year one and pulls them out of all that context. One of the best ones is, so in year one, there's two not quite Batman where he's still creating that identity moments. One, he just goes out as like a hobo and accidentally gets into a brawl and that escalates. The other one, which is after this, which is where he creates the Batman persona and tries to fight three guys on a um, fire escape and just barely makes it out. And that's all well and good. In, in Phantasm, we have that moment where he just, as Bruce Wayne, tries to fight two normal dudes and gets his ass handed to him. And then we get something a little better. We get him going out as just a dude in a ski mask and leather jacket, utility belt. He's Batman now, basically. But he doesn't have what he calls the egg. And he makes a big deal about this later. He fights three guys. And he just like kung fu flips, lands, says, stop what you're doing. And they say, fuck you. And they shoot at him. Yeah. And now he ha- he has the skill and he has most of what we consider like essential Batman gadgets on him. He's got shurikens and smoke bombs and, you know, grapple hooks. But he doesn't have the edge. And so he just barely squeaks out of this encounter. They're trying to boost the truck and he ends up like clinging to the truck and stopping them but causing a massive pileup. And he just, you know, crawls away. He's like, oh my God, I can't. This is not going to work. This is not going to fucking work. And what I love about that is in year one, they show him trying to be Batman as Batman and failing. But Mm. in Phantasm, they show him trying to be a crime fighter without being Batman and failing. Because for me, every, and he says, I need an edge. I need something over on them. And for all these types of characters, you have that thing. Because they're supposed to be outnumbered and overpowered, but secretly they have something that gives them the edge. And for him, it's the entire methodology of Batman. The 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 the, the stealth, the intimidation, the like psychological warfare. For a lot of characters, yeah. the edge is just superior skill, right? Like Green Arrow mm. gets to be successful, not necessarily because of his gadgets, but because he's just that good at archery. Uh, uh, Shang-Chi does this, Bronze Tiger does this, Wildcat does this. Black Canary used to do this until they gave her the Canary Cry. Their edge was just being really, really good. Sandra Kane does this. They're just that much better. Whereas Batman has a whole process that gives him the edge. Yeah, and indeed, the nature of Batman's process, it actually requires there to be something of a myth around the character, which makes it workable. There's... There's um, a surprising number of comics where Batman gets away on on things because he's Batman. And that's because he's used the reputation of Batman to be an edge. Right. You know what I hate? I hate watching Batman stand and I hate watching Batman walk. Because she Mm. should always be creepy. Like, he's supposed to be maintaining the illusion. So he should be doing everything in his power to be as intimidating as possible. Yeah. And so whenever he's just, like, hanging out, I'm like, okay... Does the mask come off now? Or you just... And that's cool. I actually would love to see that moment more where we watch him turn it off. Like, just three panels. One is him. And, like, whatever edge of the panel is closest to him, it's, like, outlined in black. And then there's just that one moment where he steps forward 
and it's like half black, half normal. And then he's talking like a normal person. Yeah. You know, it's a conversation with Superman or with Gordon. Yeah. On the note of like the hero uh, uh, of the edge and whatnot, uh, I, there's, I'm going to make this about Amanda Waller one way or another, but not to actually make this about Amanda Waller. There is a moment in Suicide Squad, which I think really excellently handles um, the Batman edge. Uh, this is this is years ago. Uh, in a Suicide Squad comic, there's a point where uh, the Suicide Squad get to the attention of Batman, who is not exactly happy to find out that they exist as a concept. Oh, yeah. he's, he, he's not a fan. Um, and he winds up in a confrontation with, uh, with Rick Flagg. And this confrontation with Flagg ends with an escalating argument like just just chest to chest two guys arguing with each other about who's got the better idea of how to solve a problem and flag gets halfway through a sentence where he's talking down to batman about his methodologies and batman sucker punches just straight up bing right on the jaw and flag who prior to this point has been the badass natural of the suicide squad just goes down just like yeah that'll happen you you can't just get hit in the face that hard and be fine all the time. And I really love that moment as a sort of, like, reminder that Batman is a natural... In this context, Batman is meant to be a normal guy. But he's still a very scary normal guy. And even other normal guys will recognize that. Right. I say guy. It's funny, too. <laughs> just the thing where basically Flab gets, like, infuriated at Waller and at the whole thing. Because, fuck, you, you get me... Going against Batman. So am I a bad guy now? Because of this? Because of all of this shit? Because you put me in this position? Yes. And, and all of that, like, continues to lead to Flag's breakdown. Yeah. You know? The, 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 um, the idea of the natural is also part of this whole conversation about genres. Because it's not like the natural is a bad character type by any means at all. The, 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 the issue was very much um, about what they get asked to do and what they get asked to compare to. Because really the things that make Superman stories great aren't actually hardwired to power. Not the specific power. Not the, not the scale of his power. Like, Superman needs to be stronger than us, but he needs to be strong enough that it's meaningful that he's better than us. That he is morally capable of maintaining a, a degree of purity that we want to see in the world. So, the story being about, well, Superman uh, can lift 10 tons or Stu Superman can lift 50 tons doesn't make that much difference. But when you put the natural alongside Superman and they're both meant to be doing exactly the same level and degree and type of stuff, that's where we get this problem. And there is we come back to that power level discussion because the implication of being normal is that you're not necessarily going to be able to hang on all power levels. And if you can... There needs to be a really good reason. Yeah, like we were saying, or at least I was saying, that if you're going to be on one of these all-star teams with different levels, then you have to bring something more than just your individual skill set, you know? You have to be a leader, a tactician, a programmer, a hacker, a scientist, something else. Government authorization, access yeah. to structural power. <laughs> Anything um, else, in you know? In uh, Irredeemable, they touch on this with the character of the Hornet. And one of the points they make is that the Hornet is completely hosed. The, the Hornet is so weak compared to the even the mild meta threats that exist 
that if the Plutonian, their uh, Superman analog, ever did go haywire, he would be completely helpless. Which means that he was the only person who thought, oh wow, what would, what would happen if that happened? I'd be so screwed. Is it bad of me to make a contingency for this? And indeed, he does make a contingency for that, and one of the things about him is his moral conflict at having made that contingency, because if he never had to call upon it, it's a complete dick move. Yeah, I mean, that's the classic Batman story. Uh, I think it was uh, Justice League Tower of Babel, sorry, JLA Tower of Babel, where it's revealed that Batman has these plans and someone got access to them and has been using them against the Justice League. Yeah. And, you know, what spins out of that, how nobody trusts him. Yeah. After they find this out, because everybody had to experience at least part of this plan, you know? Yeah. Uh, Martian um, Manhunter had his skin set on fire, and he's like, the fuck, Bruce? <laughs> that yeah. shit hurt! That was horrible! Yeah, uh, and then then that opens a really interesting question of, like, who's responsible for certain types of actions, and the the idea of responsibility for actions that aren't actually your own is a lasting question in uh, superhero comics. Like, are you responsible for the behavior of the thief who broke into your house? Well, no, but if you hadn't done the other thing, you could have been there and you could have prevented it. And Like, that that opens another set of questions. And, you know, it's, it's a, it is a complicated thing, and the natural character often gets to stand aside from that because they get to say, look, well, you know, I, I can't fart Thunderbolts. You know, right. whatever, whatever I wind up doing with my time is, is you know, morally uh, on a different scale than the person who who can literally fly. I, I don't have to hold myself to that standard. But there's always that little aftertaste of smug, isn't there? Yeah, and I think part of that is, too, when people talk about these characters, they always go, well, he's the normal one, as if there aren't hundreds of them. He's not the normal one. Yeah. He's the representative of all the other normal ones. And I kind of want that moment where characters like Green Arrow and the entire Bat family and Black Canary and Wildcat come up to him and like, hey, you're making us look bad. Okay. Yeah. Or you, you, you're us in the Justice League. So you have to maintain a certain level. And it's kind of the, the, the thing. Cause like Avengers really has this, like you might get a black, uh, black widow sometimes. She comes and goes. Yeah. And you never have currently that gone thing where she. Right, uh, and you've never had Daredevil on the Avengers, and I don't think we've ever had a character like Shang-Chi no. on the Avengers. Though, been... though consider for a, for a very significant period of time, the Avengers has had both Black Widow and Hawkeye, and sometimes a third ordinary person. Right, and then, like, where does Captain America fit in there, you know? Yeah. Like, his whole thing is he's, like, one step past an Olympian. Yeah. So, does that count? And, is is you know, yeah? Is he uh, on that level? Is he beyond that level? What exactly? How exactly should he be being considered? And like the usual, the usual response is like, no, Captain America can't can't count because he had that super soldier serum stuff. But then you can just point to characters like Black Widow, who had like creepy, you know, Russian mystic, you know, uterus magic done to her, right? Or um, Nick Fury, classic Nick Fury, who had the um, Infinity Formula. That makes him eternally, and again, Captain America's whole deal was he was just a little bit stronger. And so we could, we could point to that and say, and considering he doesn't use any more esoteric devices, mm. like, does Captain America's physical skill plus his shield plus his, you know, mental skills equate to Batman's physical skill plus his 
uh, mental skill plus his gadgets, which can do more than the shield. Does yeah. that cancel and, out? And I mean, this is this is where we are at that point talking really about a genre thing. Because Captain mm. America stories, they're ultimately modeled kind of on, on um, Soldier Boy stories. Of, not not mm. the musician, but on stories of, like, you know, Boy's Annual of here is a soldier put in a difficult situation and we recognize that the complicated questions being asked of this soldier are actually a bit much, but that's okay. Whereas Batman's so- stories are, they're fundamentally about um, detective stories. And because of the detective stories, he needs access to tons of information, especially because he's dealing with super threats and super villains and their level of information. And that's like a really legitimately fascinating puzzle. Like, how do you, how do you struggle around with, um, the, the, the question of a, a, a superhero detective who's just an ordinary person? Because do they look like Batman? Do they have their own personal forensics department? Right. And this is part of also why I like characters like Casey Jones or Wild Dog or just this one asshole. No super skill, no resources. He just comes in and like toughs it out. Yeah. But there has to be a point where you tell Casey to go sit down. Yeah. Like, he has to stop at some level. Yeah, and and um, in, in the case of the example of the Hornet from Irredeemable, that's not a usable example for a greater superheroic universe. That example works for Irredeemable because the entire point of that story is that it is about the collapse and failure point of a superhero network. You can't have that as the thing that comes up every couple of weeks it just doesn't work it doesn't hold um and it doesn't allow you for a stable status quo where you can revisit the characters and and discover new things about them on a regular basis it's kind of like you're talking about prep time here is what you're saying yeah i really am prep time (laughs) yeah it, it turns into for lack of a better word it it is a quarter you can't spend twice it really is just something that you can't ever do again without a real problem and because of that it means that these characters if they want to hang at that level they're often doing like they're burning a candle and the fact that the fact that batman often in like a uh, young justice is batman interestingly like young justice not not a uh, not justice league but in young justice batman was actually handled in a way i liked a lot in that you very rarely saw him doing anything he was he was the coordinator. He was the one who who looked at a problem and said, "All right, I can see which other character is best suited to deal with this. I can see where we need Zatanna and uh, and and Zatara, and I, I I can tell where Bruce, well, sorry, where where Clark should be, and so on. Like that kind of like super administration doesn't seem a very impressive power, but it's a really cool place to start." And it doesn't take away from, like, the core nature of the character. This is why I get mad at, like, overly technological advances, because... Like a tank? Like a tank, like a Batman. Because there's a couple of things. One is he says, class, way back in the day, first Batman ever, he says, I need to be able to scare them. All right, cowardly and superstitious lot. Superstitious lot. And I have to be able to scare them. So I become a bat. Okay, once you have a tech, a, a mech... You don't need to scare them anymore. Yeah. You can just beat them up. So why are you Batman now? What is the point of all this now? Why does the mech have ears? You know? <laughs> and, like, that, the, the, the mechs, 
And Batman has had a variety of mechs, and they have been, in some cases, extraordinarily dumb, including the one that held five suns in each fist. Like... Which was this? <laughs> this, one, yeah. this one got past me. Yeah, there was, a, there was a bat mech in one of the obligatory, well, what if he had to fight Superman stories, in which the, thing, the mech in question had big red knuckles... And oh, the big twist was like, aha, Clark, you see, each one of these contains, each one of these gems on my knuckles is a compressed red sun. So I, I can punch you on your level. I'm like, really? If you've got five compressed suns on the end of your arms, you're probably punching well above his level? Just by the way his powers work? Like, at this point, you're a bully, man. Yeah, and even just, even just the ridiculously overdone tech, even if he doesn't get in a robot, even if it's just, oh, I twitch my nose and all this stuff happens. Okay, then why are you Batman now? You're a wizard. Go be wizard man. Yeah. You know? The and Arkham, the Arkham games just lost this so hard. Like, cruising around in the streets with a tank with a bazooka on it. Yeah. And, uh, I have a thing about tech in terms of characters like this, where like there's a point where you go from being a natural to being a tech character, because we wouldn't consider Iron Man a natural, even no. though he's just a normal guy. And yeah. I have my little rule set, which basically goes, one, is your tech doing all the work for you? If I take it away from you, are you powerless? Uh Two, does your tech emulate real superpowers? Like, you know... Iron Man can fly, he's super durable, he can shoot energy beams, and he has enhanced senses. He's Superman. Yeah. You know? Right. Is it, is it separate from the rest of society? Does no one else have it? And can it be removed? Because all of these factors can determine if you're tech or not, right? And yeah. like, if you have at least three of these, you're not a natural anymore. And. Yeah. You know, you take Green Arrow. Green Arrow has gotten rid of all of his tech. At various points, it said, no, I'm just going to shoot people with regular arrows, which is kind of horrible, but whatever. Yeah. Because his whole thing is, he's just that good at archery. And even to this day, you look at characters like that, the super archers. If we were to break down the, like, percentage of regular arrows to stupid tech arrows, it's probably like an 80-20 split. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, another another metaphor that I've used for this in the past is... When you get to the story, the point in the story where you lose all your stuff, because it'll happen. It, eventually, some writer will do that. When you get to that point, if you get dropped in a shopping mall, how long before you're back up to code? Because in the case of, like, Tony Stark, you could drop him in a shopping mall, and because part of his powers is being Tony Stark, he could nonsense up a Iron Man, like, maybe a force projector, or, or part of his Iron Man rig out of just domestical purchasable stuff. That wouldn't be a stretch for his character. If you dropped Hawkeye in a store, though, he goes to the he goes to the local athletic store, he buys a bow. He's back. <laughs> you, you drop Black Widow in a store, she goes to Big W and she buys a gun and she's back. This is, I admit, part of why I'm so down on characters whose superpower is has a gun. Yeah. And I know that's my and thing, I and I know it's not everyone else's thing, but it's just kind of a thing that bothers me. I don't mind it. I mean, part of it is a, like, being unique about having a gun. You know, if you're going to be, you know, a dual pistols character or a sniper, that's mm. cool. Or even like a duelist, like a cowboy, a gunslinger, that's cool. If you just have guns, plural, you're less interesting. You like, know? you know who I do really like who is a character who has a gun? Jonah Hex. Because he's a cowboy. Yeah, he's a goddamn he's, cowboy. A he's, whole... got, he's got a haunted gun. 
there's a whole like, like that's dramatic thing about that, you know? Like once you reach into like generic soldier levels, it's just shoot shoot. But once you get into very specific types of, you know, marksmen, mm-hmm. then again, you have a specific edge now. You have a thing like I'm the best sniper ever, so that's my thing. I'm the best gunslinger ever. There was a throwaway character in Agent X who sadly I cannot remember her name. Uh, and her thing was, she was a sniper. And one of the tropes about sniping that gets on my nerves when we see it presented in, in uh, most most games and most comics is the idea of the lone sniper. Because typically speaking, snipers work in pairs because sniping is super hard. Mm. And in this Agent X character, her thing was, her partner, her spotter, got killed. And so haunted the gun that she used. So so now she had this ghost spotter who couldn't travel away from the gun, so she still had to do exactly all the same stuff, but they looked like one person most of the time. Um, and this was a really cool idea, and then you look at the character and you're like, are you... Like, you're not natural properly, but what you do is almost entirely actual human-attainable skills. Like, if you had a, a drone or an earpiece mic so someone else could do spotting for you, we wouldn't say, oh, well, you're clearly a, a powerful tech hero. And it's interesting, too, like, when the edges of magic come in, mm-hmm. you know, like, how far does that go? Like, yeah, with Moon Knight. And especially when it's everywhere. Moon. Right. Like, yeah. uh, in, in City of Heroes, you'd see this all the time where people would have this character who had a well-thought-out, thoroughly researched backstory that they really were proud of, and there was just this, like, no, never ask the question of why they can fly. Like, <laughs> people can fly. Superheroes can fly. Shut up. See, I was I was too too much of a stickler. Like, I have very few characters who can fly. Yeah. And for most of them who could, that was their whole deal. <laughs> they were a rocket man, and they, were, they had wigs or some shit. Yeah. Even and I mean, any- that's not the way everyone handled it, but because in that in-universe... Uh, flight was a common enough thing that no one felt any real need to explain or justify it, and that's part of the thing with guns as well, and part of why natural characters... Interestingly, if you do look at some of, like, the classic natural characters that we're talking about here, they often don't use guns. They often even make a point about not using guns. Yeah. I think part of that is the powerlessness aspect, because they want to be in a lesser position. Yeah. They, They want the writers. So, you know, they want to see them on the back step, but their superior skill makes up that difference. Yeah. Because you want five bad guys with guns over there and one guy with a bow over here. Yeah. So you know who's a hero. It's funny. Um, and also, you, you could make a, a case that, that the um, that the gun escalates a fight, which is mm. kind of the exact opposite of this edge thing you were discussing. Right. Uh, I was t- talking about, uh, well, listening to Guillermo del Toro talk, and he was saying when he does a fight scene, he'll show the hands of everybody in the scene, right? And the hero will have empty hands, and they'll show the villains, the, the the bad guys, and they have weapons. So you show the hands, knuckles cracking. You show the weapons readying to get that sense that he's the hero, that he has to f- overcome great obstacles. Yeah, that this is not fair because right as with as with our discussion of power uh, and secret identity, we kind of acknowledge that fairness is good. We we don't usually cheer for the person who's already going to win. Uh, you might notice the most curb stomp battles, even from like natural characters to natural characters, they tend to be more funny than viscerally satisfying. Right. As with Flag versus Batman. <laughs> it's that moment. That's also why I'll never like completely reject the like in a super in a natural environment that one guy who kills people because sometimes it's funny. 
for them to just yeah. have a big moment. And then the one guy just go, bam! What, what the fuck were y'all doing? Like, yeah. Shang-Chi, Kung Fu's really nice. I'm two blocks away on a roof with my sniper rifle. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the other like things Huntress. that the natural can do really well is infrastructural power. Now, we'll get more into this later, but consider, to use a fairly recent contemporary example, Luke Cage. And we're going to be real quick here. We're, we're not going to dwell on this one, alright? But in Luke Cage, a lot of the villains and opposition Luke has, before anyone's developing weapons to hurt Luke, they are people with infrastructural power, and they are absolutely threats. They can make it so people don't trust Luke. They can attack Luke on an angle that his powers don't care about. And they are all very reasonable and very real threats. Mm. That's the thing, too, when we come to a character like the Kingpin, mm. who mostly just wields large amounts of structural power. I mean, he's a huge dude, and he can beat anybody's ass, you know? In the comics, he's kind of ridiculously large. Like, that's yeah. probably a superpower. But even still, we just say he's a very large gentleman who has a lot of money and power. Mm. The Indeed, the, the idea of um the Kingpin having personal power was always meant to be kind of like a, ooh, surprise, because up to the point where Kingpin had a direct physical confrontation, they never, with, with Spider-Man, they didn't make an issue of the fact that the Kingpin was physically very tough. Uh, right. It's when it's when Spider-Man actually was like, went, went up to him and was like, well, I'm dealing with an obese man here, I'm fine, walked up to him, and the Kingpin went like, okay, cool, I'm 600 pounds, and I can move <laughs> around, and that means that by default, I can move about 600 pounds. That's not a small thing. And right. so there's this famous image of, of Kingpin crushing Spidey. And there's a similar one with Daredevil. It, it's a go-to move for him. And, you know, obviously you can't pull that off in the real world. Real people who are that heavy often have massive problems. Uh, even, even like our biggest wrestlers cap out in the, in the 300 pounds kind of range. But in universe, Kingpin is, Kingpin is a dude who trains. He's just a big dude who trains and uses business. Yeah, and that's the whole deal, too, is that he mostly deals with characters on his level, but he's always presented as the biggest threat. You mm. know? You can fight. It's not that he has an army of ninjas. It's not that he's giant. It's that he has the most power. He's the kingpin of crime. Now, connected to that it, in the case of the kingpin, which is a thing I like about this whole conversation quite a lot, is the nature of kingpin's power is one where he gets it over heroes by being bad. Like, he has structural power that he does by being a criminal, by being a bad person. So there's never a question of, like, well, why doesn't Spider-Man just have the same powers? And why doesn't Spider-Man do that? It's because in order to do that, he would have to become morally compromised and do bad things that hurt people. And that's that addresses one of the big problems of the natural that I used to deal with and get very frustrated with, which is... Why aren't the heroes doing this? If why aren't every other people doing this? Like if there's a breathing technique that uh, that Danny Rand can do, why isn't Luke Cage doing it? Because then you've got Luke Cage who can heal himself even on top of his invulnerability, and that that just makes things more boring. It reduces the specialness of everything of an individual character. Well, there's a realness to that because um, I think there was a moment in Maximum Carnage. And this, and it, really, this was a bullshit moment on Danny's part, but he did it anyway. Uh, one of the things Iron Fists can do is hypnotize people by manipulating the chi, right? Yeah. And so Spider, so there's a big riot. 
because that's part of what Maximum Carnage is about. And Iron Fist shows up and calms the riot. And Spider-Man says, oh, that's amazing. If we can all do that, we can fix this. And he goes, Iron Iron Fist goes, yeah, cool. It'll just take 10 years. And Spider-Man just flips out and smashes a wall. He's like, fuck. And that's kind of real. There are things you can do to yourself in training that anybody, well, most people can do. It just takes 10 years to learn how to do. Yeah. And train yourself to do. Yeah. And that then opens the door of, of, um, like, it almost asks a kind of moral question of, like, why aren't, if, if this is attainable in general, uh, why aren't you trying to do it? And that's the problem you get when you get characters whose abilities are too easily replicated, like things like, uh, the, the, the suits from, um, sorry, the things like, power, like, um, uh, Iron Man suits. If Iron Man suits were mass producible, the question is why hasn't he made a core of them? And there are there are stories you can do about that and, and why not to do that. But it still asks the question. So that's part of my problem with the too proliferated natural. But in the case of this story, in the case of this maximum carnage moment, yeah, like that that's a great example of how you can introduce a cool thing that renders a character unique without it diluting what other characters can do without it becoming something that everyone should be able to do. It's it's also kind of explicitly bullshit on his part because he knows he has dragon powers. It's like Shang Chi can't do that. Shang Chi is the master of kung fu. He's the greatest fighter in the Marvel universe, but he can't hypnotize people because he doesn't have magic. Yeah. So Iron Fist just lied to Spider Man's face well, and said, "Oh, well, I can teach you how to do it." Well, you know, Spider Man can handle being lied to from now and again. Yeah, but yeah. even that, right? The problem with natural characters uh, when overdone is that they make certain types of powers too attainable for everyone. Uh, I, I honestly don't think that Iron Fist counts as a as a uh, oh, natural character. Far from it. He's he's yeah. he is a kung fu kickman, and I think that we will have a fun time doing a kickman episode soon. <laughs> yeah, but even that, like, there was a moment in recent years, Shang Chi has shot, taught Spider-Man his own martial arts style. And I think uh. that, right, that takes the character in a different direction that betrays his genre in the same way that, say, the Atom or Mr. Terrific or um, Cyborg giving Batman a mech would betray his character, you know? Yeah. You yeah. kind of want them to stay within their genre to a certain degree. So even the natural characters, you kind of want them to stay natural and on the flip side, you don't want them to go around teaching Superman Kung Fu because that makes things weird. And it also starts it, to lessen the value of those characters because it's like, oh, well, now Superman is a master strategist. So why do we need anybody? Right. Yeah. Now, I will I will say it's not just that it makes them weird. It also makes them boring because yeah. because I I don't want to see Danny solving problems the way Batman solves problems. I don't want to see the stories of these characters becoming interchangeable. And if they can mostly do things the same way, especially when you're dealing with people who are who are good and good-natured and cooperative, they're going to just say, "Oh, well, we worked out the best method to solve this problem. Here is the thing. There's a little little course you can do and we'll teach you how to do it." Um, I want the stories of Danny Rand to be about uh, punch kick dragon stuff and I want the stories about Black Widow to be about uh, espionage and, and, and 
things that can't be solved by punching them because it's all about structural power and secrets and information and in a way that can't just be psychic at as well. So right. I guess I guess that's part of the other side of this, which is some superpowers ruin natural stories. <laughs> yeah, like half of half psychic powers can fuck up any decent like Batman or Punisher story because it's just oh well I figured it out ten miles ahead and I wouldn't solve the problem while you were here. Um, what was the thing about Daredevil trying to uh, follow a guy and he used like a color lock? And so Daredevil had to do all kinds of things mm. where he would feel like the wear of the paint to figure out the code. And it took him like five hours so the guy had already run away. Yeah, and, and like, that may seem like kind of a cheap shot, like almost kind of a joke of like, ha ha ha, Daredevil is a character who is weak. But it's it's bringing to bear an element of that character in a place that otherwise would have ignored it. And I, I really prefer that to the alternative. I want to see a Cassandra Kane story where they have to get around the fact that she can barely talk. Like, yeah. She has to go do a social thing. It's not about beating people up. It's about, mm. like, finessing things. And so, there's what, a, what does she do with that? There's another story, and I can't remember who it was. I want to say it was Jason Todd. But there was a Cassandra Kane story where the problem was he effectively was painted as a bad guy. And that meant that despite the fact that his best, like the person who could help him the best in the situation was Cassandra, if he got within height, within height or hair of her, she would just beat his ass down. And, and he knew he couldn't even vaguely come close to fighting her. So the puzzle became, how do I maneuver around my friend, uh, who I can barely communicate with at the moment, because like, if, if she sees me, she's just going to be like, straight up, cool, yep, yeah, I know what you are, whack. Now, don't yeah. get me wrong, that's more of a Jason Todd story, if it is Jason Todd. Yeah, and that's also the thing, too, of characters like Jason Todd, the ones who exist on the fringes of it. I dislike how they've turned him into just almost like the Punisher. Yeah. Since, you know, because that was the least interesting thing about him. You know, when he first showed up, his idea of you can't fight crime, only control it. And I really wanted to see that aspect of him as you know, his control of crime and how he, you know, parlayed that into being a crime fighter with murder. Mm. And there's not a lot of examples of that that I would love to see, like that intersection. Because that's a skill set that doesn't come up a lot. The idea of actually being a part of the thing you're dealing with instead of coming in from the outside. Yeah. Um, and and an another natural character who does that is Huntress. Yes. And interestingly... Being... Uh, Come to think of it, Ollie as well. Uh, Ollie, Ollie <laughs> starts out as, without realizing it, as a beneficiary of a very powerful conspiracy. Right. Even just the ties to the mafia and all the things that being part of an evil rich organization can get you if you play it properly. Yeah. One well, thing about Huntress is she loses that the more she kills the mafia. Like, yeah. Because nobody's gonna deal with her. Yeah. Like, no, but it's, Suddenly you know, the name Helena Bertinelli, Bertinelli isn't worth anything, no. Yeah. Everybody talks to the Bertinelli family who ends up dead. I'm sure it's fine. Mm. I'm sure it's nothing. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing, too. I like, I would like Huntress as the Punisher of the Batman family. Yeah. Because. And you know when they that did works that? for her in the 90s. <laughs> Outsiders? Uh, mm. <laughs> I'm just saying, Outsiders was real, real good. Outside of school, and I do, like, this one of the things I will always, like, kind of root for with that whole Defenders thing is putting more, like, 
like shine on that diversity of characters like that. Because for the yeah. longest time, it was Batman's the normal one. And it's like, no, there's a lot of characters like that who do different things, yeah. intersect in different ways. And so now that we're starting to see that idea in Defenders and in uh, the Arrow show with just different types of natural characters dealing with, you know, crime and the military and the government, it's way more interesting because... Yeah, and and the the thing about the natural character in these contexts is much like the X-Men are a science fiction character in a superhero world, the natural character lets you tell all these other stories in a superhero world. It lets you have some really interesting twists on the things that are problems in a superhero world because suddenly you have concerns where enemies enemies you interact with might represent overwhelming individual power and then you have to find out the question of like how do you box that in how do you solve that problem which you can't just solve by waving a gun at it at the right time mm. i mean we have a another example of a, a like i don't think it was an amazing series but a uh, peggy carter Pe Peggy Carter used the framework of a natural person in a superheroic world dealing with all this super science juju nonsense um, in a way that was interesting and compelling. She, you know, she solved that kind of problem. Right. And that's what you get into with characters like Waller and Nick Fury. And I do find Waller and Carter more interesting than classic Fury because... Fury would get into the middle of things, you know? He was just as much, uh, like, gritty James Bond as he was a director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. He'd get into fights. This is back when he looked like David Hasselhoff. Right. And he was <laughs> the world-famous super spy. Yeah. Like, hey, you're Nick Fury! Wait, no. That doesn't... <laughs> we, like, we were not good at world-building, alright? As, as right. comics go, world-building is something we're still not great at. <laughs> uh, but... You know, he got in the fights. He shot people up. He beat government officials with his belt. That's a thing that happened once. <laughs> yeah. And he did that. And that became like a super move in a video game he was in. Yeah, I remember. It's very embarrassing <laughs> and very cringy. But, like, he got in the middle of things versus Waller. Now, Waller could pick up a gun and shoot you, but she'd just paperwork you to death. And yeah. that would work much better, you mm. know? I, and... And to use Amanda Waller as, and this is, we're going to get more into her later, but the thing I love about Waller is that she is a character who represents a type of power you don't get a lot of, which is systemic mastery. It's not that Waller is smarter than everyone around her. It's not that she's more socially adept. It's that she has gotten entrenched over years and she is infinitely stubborn. And every single person who has to interact with her on, like, a professional level knows what they can't get away with. They know what a favor from her is worth. She is she is powerful by existing as powerful. And that means that there's no way Batman can copy that. He can't outdo that. And indeed, uh, there was a story where he tried to impersonate Waller uh, in, in, like, remote. He didn't, like, actually, like, wear a suit or anything, but he tried to impersonate Waller in remote correspondence, and it blew up in his face, because everyone who's dealt with Waller knows how she acts better than Batman could work out. Yeah, and that's one of the more disappointing things, like, post-New 52, where they make her, you know, super spy lady. Yeah. Skinny. Yeah. She works. Young. <laughs> <laughs> See, here's the problem. I'm all in favor of DC getting a hot 
black super spy lady who is tough as nails and can chew off Batman's head. Just don't take Amanda Waller away to make her. Just make a new character and make her be cool. I've, I I have personally, in an extremely petty way, greatly enjoyed how much darker Huntress gets over the years. Because, <laughs> like, these days, these days she looks like me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. Like, is she Italian still? Shut up. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Huntress, Huntress gets to exist in that wonderful space of, uh, uh, uh of not white, white. Cause she's, yeah. you know, she's modeled on Italians and, you know, there was a period when the white people in America and Australia thought that Italians weren't white. So that's where Helena is. That's, that's where she is now. Yeah, no, like, ever since, like, Grayson, they've just been drawing her darker and darker and her hair curlier and yeah. curlier. And it's just like, two years from now, she's just gonna have an afro. <laughs> <laughs> very, very slow um, race lifting. Um, yeah, considering I, they do that the opposite direction all the time, I'm okay with that. Yeah, and, and on the subject of race, because I know we do bring this up from time to time, race is a really important part of the, the, Thing. Like, the fact that natural characters let you explore structural power means that natural characters tend to be the ones who who, who often thrive narratively as people of colour, because there is, there's more stuff there. Danny Rand, ultimately, is, like, take away Danny Rand's powers, he's still a billionaire. Yeah. And his story of tragically not being a billionaire for a little while isn't as compelling as, say, Misty Knight in... In Luke Cage, I, I know she gets powers immediately. Um, but Misty Knight's struggling against the twofold problem of the structural power of police wanting to protect police versus the uh, the, the the kind of impromptu governments set up around her. Right, and you get a bit of that with characters like uh, Duke Washington in uh, Batman, where he forms his own little gang and creates the real Robin. You know, organizing. Mm-hmm. Well, he doesn't form it, but he ends up taking leadership of it, and like that intersection of these people in the margins, and it's it's way cooler to see that come in because again, that's a different type of skill. That the idea of a heroic like gang leader of someone whose power is I know a bunch of dudes with bats, and we're gonna fix this problem. I, I can't think of anything like that that I've seen in years. You know, as a main yeah, character. it's not. It's not a current idea, especially because the schema of what a gang represents has very much been co-opted by the idea that a gang is a mid-1990s crack boom vision of what a gang is. Yeah, and I mean, that's also part of the idea of it being unfair. If your ability is to make other people do your work for you, it does kind of make you seem like a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. Versus I mean, doing it yourself with your own hands. It's the same as the gun conversation. I mean, consider if I tell you that a character is a mastermind, that has a degree of threat to it. Mm, yeah. Uh, and it, but again, that's, I mean, that's part of why, you know, these characters work well in big superhero teams. Cause it's like, yeah, I got other people to do my problems for me, but I'm not putting them at risk. Superman, I mean, Batman saying, Superman, go do this is not going to put him at risk as much as, say, Nick Fury doing that, and that's part of the moral gray area that is Nick Fury or Waller, where they make other people do their work for them, and you know they put people out there, and some of them can die, and that makes them seem more evil. You know that's part mm. of the thing where the Suicide Squad goes out and dies, 
and that makes Waller look worse. Yeah, it's a, it is an interesting thing because it even gives them the potential to do that, and the, the way the Suicide Squad frames it to start with was that the Suicide Squad characters are bad. Like, most of them are bad, and over the course of the story, you humanize them a little, but then there are always these reminders that they're kind of just bad people. Um, for a while there, there was this thing with Captain Boomerang, who was the longest-lasting criminal member of the squad, who mostly spent his time trying to test the limits of the explosive by baiting other people who were new to the squad into going and getting <laughs> their heads blown off. Yeah. Even just the, uh, the thing of him wearing Mirror Master's old outfits and going off and doing crimes in his free time. Yeah. Like, he, he he couldn't stop. He couldn't give it up. And they're like, we'll, we'll let you go if you stop being a piece of shit and, you know, do your work. And he just couldn't. Yeah. He couldn't let it go. Yeah. So there is, there is a lot of stuff you could do with a natural character. They don't have to be, like, as a fundamental thing, a, a conflict with a superhero universe. It's just that that it's that forced overlap. It's that point where you demand that these two things stand alongside each other and one thing has to give. Because if that happens, well, we know what normal human beings look like. We know what they can do. So if your story tells me this is a normal human being and they can do this, then that reduces the mystery and the wonder and the ability of the superhero character. I mean, it, on a certain level, it even takes away the nature of that character. Because if a natural character can outfight another superhuman, then once we go back to their schema and their dynamic of being caught in traps or being outnumbered or being on the back end, and we know they can beat up Superman, then the whole thing falls apart. Because then it's like, well, no. Why is this even a story now? Yeah. You know? Yeah. If, Haw- if this, Hawkeye this will- can beat up Iron Man, this- why would I read the Hawkeye solo where he's fighting Russians in an apartment? Yeah. Who cares? Now, this this will wind up coming back uh, when we wind up, when my article on The Cape comes out. But basically, <laughs> the world wants to reinforce the characters in it. If they mm. And the characters are part of the world. So if two characters uh, are forced to compare to one another in a way that makes them both look bad... It's going to hurt the whole thing. Anyway, that, yeah. I think that's all I got to say on this. Uh, anyway, that's our general thoughts on the idea of the natural hero and maybe why I need to relax a little and stop being mad at people for having fun in their own way. <laughs> okay. That was being mad at people is half of what we do here. Exactly. That was From the Rooftops. That was Clay. And that was Talon. No jokes. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about Blade. No, you won't. Natural and magic origin, I think.